Stay tuned for the Lin Show. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice, finding choice where there's no choice, with gentle prodding from. story of uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, her life and music. Do I get that right? Yes. Good, 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 good. So I want to talk to you about the show. Mm -hmm. um, but before I do, I, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Mm. And I know that that describes you. And um, I know that at least one of the arts that you make your living and or your life with is the art of acting and I assume singing. Yeah. Here? Yeah. All right. Okay, good. I only ask one question and it is, do you remember and can you tell me the very first time in your life that acting, performing, fooling around, singing, music, any of that, called you, was attractive to you, interested you, stood out for you, um, yeah. nodding your head, so I think you do, tell, can you tell me? I was in eighth grade, mm -hmm. and um, I used to get bored a lot in class, because I would finish my work, 
And then I would, uh, as my teacher says, I would meal around the room and, you know, and so she said, look, 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 I'm doing this play. It's called The Red Shoes. And, um, and I talked a lot. And she said, and I want you to be in it. And I want you to play the deaf mute. So that means you got to be quiet for two hours. And if you do that, I'll give you an A. I said, really? I can get an A if I do a stupid play where I don't talk for two hours? She said, yeah. I said, okay, I did it. Her name was Miss Ingratia. And, um, and I did it. And uh, not only did I get the play, but I kind of got bitten by the bug that day. Because it was fun being able for me, for me to be able to um, perform and get people to understand me, but I couldn't use words. Wow. And after that, it was kind of like, oh, this is fun. I like this. I really like this. And uh, so when I went to high school, I, you know, every time I could take a class, I would always say, well, I want to take a theater class or I want to, you know, it has something to do with theater. So do you think that that was the moment that you decided you were going to make a life of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I got an, I mean, if I can get an A in a class for just being quiet, <laughs> and that was my paycheck, I said, oh, this could really work in my favor. Yeah, no, wait, 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 you weren't just quiet, were you? I mean, no, no. But I mean, I could use that attribute. If this is the things that I can use, this is a great way to go. I was very fortunate. I came up with a theater, a heavy, heavy theater program at school. Um, and I, I had to get, of course, I had to keep my grade point up in order to do that, which really made, I worked hard because I really enjoyed it. I was able to stay late. And I think I did my first professional play at the age of 15 in my hometown because there weren't any black actresses around. And at that time, I didn't know it, but my teacher was like, I've got this young girl that can really act. I didn't know, you know, someone else saw that. And that teacher still is here. And his name, I always say this because people laugh. And my teacher's name is Jim Crow. And <laughs> he was my high school teacher that absolutely taught me everything in the beginning of what it was to be an actor. And so I started doing, I didn't know it at the time, but I started doing professional shows really at the age of 15 at a theater in Rockford, Illinois called the New American Theater. And I've never stopped working. I graduated high school. I went to Illinois State University and did my undergrad work. Um, and then I got out and I was auditioning, but I still felt I needed something. And so I always wanted to go to the Goodman School of Theater. It's now called the Theater School at DePaul, I think. But at that time, it was I was the last class of the Goodman School of Drama. And so I went to the Goodman School of Drama, finished up everything I needed. You know, back then they were giving like, um, that was before when conservatories didn't give you like degrees, but they gave you like these certificates were that were akin to, you know, a master's degree. And so I did that and I went to the conservatory and then I just got out and I started auditioning for everything possible. I mean, everything that came in my purview, I auditioned for it. You know, because it was the 70s and um, and I knew that I had a hard time because I was a black actress in America trying to audition for things that I learned in school. But people in re the real world were going to let me do. Yeah. They weren't going to let me be Juliet. They weren't going to let me be Cleopatra. They weren't going to let me do. But I was trained classically. I was a trained classical actress and I had all this stuff under me, but I'd never let it stop me. I auditioned for everything. I think 
I told somebody, I think it was, I probably auditioned for the Goodman Theater, probably, even though that's one of the reasons I wanted to go to their conservatory at the time. I probably auditioned them for 10 years before I ever really got a job there. So you have the skills, right? Yeah. And you have the natural inclination. You want it, right? But you had so much resistance from the universe. Do you know what kept you going? What kept you? I mean, because I think that stopped a lot of people, I think. Right. Because I know I could do exactly what I saw other people do. And at many times I thought I could do it better. And I just knew it was a passion and it was something that I really loved and it kept my brain going. It it fed me. You know, I would read just the classics and I would read the Greeks and I would just read and read and study and study. Even when I wasn't in performance, I just kept studying and I kept training. And then I went to an audition one day and um, someone told me, they said, do you sing? I said, I didn't pay all that money to go to school to sing. And literally, I really felt that way because I was like, no, I'm not. No, and they acting, said, well, acting is serious business. Right. That, you know that, you know how that goes. Yeah, right. I do. Not knowing, I just went, oh, get, get, shut up. And they were like, no, literally, if you can, like, find two songs to audition with, you can actually make more money in a musical than you can in a play. I said, what? I said, I, really? They said, yeah, and they're looking for people. So I found two songs, classic songs from my, one was from Pearly. I know it was, I Got Love. Wait, 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 wait. I Got Love. I mean, if you chose that, then you, whether you knew it or not, you had that range. Yeah, but I didn't know it. I know, but, but they did, <laughs> you know. Right, but I didn't know it. Yeah, I just, they gave me this song and said, you should try this. I said, okay, I'll try it. Uh-huh. And I started, I started audition, and I got a job. And I was like, <laughs> really? I, I mean, it was like I got a job. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. And so I started doing that. But the lovely thing about that is because, I, and I still have it, because I have this thing inside of me that acting is my first passion, that I could never sing a song without knowing the story first. Yeah. And I've turned a lot of things down when people have handed me on pieces because I said, it doesn't make sense to me. I can't sing it. And they go, just follow the notes. I said, but it doesn't make sense to me. And if I can't tell the story, I, I, I'm sorry. The notes mean nothing to me. Yeah, right. And uh, that's kind of how I became to begin to sing. And I remember when I was trying to go take classes and, you know, learn to read music and all these things, I had a lot of resistance from a lot of musical directors that I love them for now because they would say, please don't get so involved in knowing your, your singing, what you're doing, because you're going to, you have a gift and you can over exercise that gift by getting into your head instead of keeping it where it is right now. You have the octaves and the range you have because you're not focused on it musically. You're focused on it as a storyteller. And that is going to come across to your audience and it'll save you a lot better than it will if you go and you take some formal music classes. So um, every coach I had told me, resist that. Take, you know, work with people that you, uh, vocal coaches that you want to work with, but don't get you know, bogged down into knowing that every note must be this or that. Get away from it because you're going to destroy the gift you have. Yes, right, because it was natural. 
It was a natural gift that I didn't know. And so for that very reason, although I sight read and I can do that and I've taught myself that and I know music, I don't delve into it in a deep way. I don't take the deep dive that a lot of musical theater people do. If my ear tells me it's wrong, I know it's wrong. You know, you don't have to sit there with me an hour. I'll tell somebody in a minute, oh, just put it on tape and let me have it and I'll go home because I got to get around the words. And for some uh, musical directors, they'll go, what? And I'll go, I just really need you to pluck it out for me and just let me go home and take it. They said, but you were reading it. I said, I know I can read it, but that's not going to help me. What helps me is to sit with the story. Because could I get the story? You can give me all the notes in the world. I'm sorry. I, 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 it doesn't, I, I have to go at it from an acting standpoint. I can't go up after acting from a singer standpoint. In your career, is, has it been basically musicals? Yeah, it's been my bread and butter. <laughs> That's the I funny thing what? about it. And even when I do master classes or I'm talking to kids and they ask me all of this, I tell them the same thing. I said, look, sometimes what you think is a thing that's going to lead you is not the gift that has been designed for you to lead with. So what I'm asking you during this process of being an artist is to keep yourself open. Don't nail yourself down and say, I'm this and I will <laughs> never be this and I'm this. I said, you got to keep yourself open to the possibilities because sometimes it's something that you never thought was going to come your way. In a million years, you couldn't have told me when I was in college and high school that I would be a singer, that people would think I was a singer. I'd be like, oh, get out of here. Well, it's great advice. And yeah. kudos to and shout out to teacher Jim Crow. I always yes. say when we hear from a teacher who makes a difference, because I think teachers can do that, what he did for you, and they can do the opposite. Yep. And they do. We really want to give them, we want to, we want to say how important Oh, yeah. Okay, yep. so let's talk about Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. Talk about the show. Yeah, Fannie Lou Hamer is really a call to arms. You know, she was a heroine. She was a feminist. And I think she's an unsung hero. And it's a, one of those women at, in the 60s, period, women. It didn't matter if you were black, white, whatever, Jewish, Christian, it didn't matter. Women were always like, whatever, they're the second class citizen. So it's beautiful in this moment to celebrate a woman that was on the front lines of making sure that we had equity and inclusion. That was what she fought for. She fought to ensure that everybody, especially disenfranchised people, and I'm talking about poor people, period. And I ain't talking about just black folks, because I think a lot of people get into that part of it. She was about helping anybody that was poor and didn't have a home and didn't have food and didn't know they had the rights to ask for what they needed. That was her call to arms, to ensure that you knew you had a right to vote. This was a woman that didn't even know she had the right to vote till she was 44 years old. For 44 years, she didn't know she had any rights. So she lived on a plantation. She went to a meeting of the, um, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was founded by Julian Bond and John Lewis. And all, and they were young. These were kids that were going through Mississippi and Georgia and all these places. And they were like 18, 19 years old. And she went to one of these meetings because she wanted to see what it was about. And when she went and she found out that she could vote, that she actually had a right to vote, 
that she didn't have to do what other people did. She was like, what? And she became the oldest member of the organization because 99% of those were kids. They were between the ages of 18 and maybe 21. So here she was at 44 years old and they helped teach her to read and they taught her to write. And when they found out that her calling was to rally people, she was good at singing and rallying people. And once she got them all together, she began to tell them the very things that John Lewis and Julian Bond and all of these folks told her that y'all know we got a right to vote and we can go get registered to vote. So she would take busloads of folks down to the courthouse to try to get them registered to vote. And of course, she had a lot of resistance from the registrar and folks there, but she never gave up. She never gave up. She said when she started in Mississippi, only 5% of the black people in Mississippi were registered to vote. By the time she was finished, 70% were registered to vote. So she never get up. She traveled all over the country. She was always the opening act for the men. She was always like the opening act. By the time she got finished with the crowd, they were ready to go out there and register and vote and fight and march. And so every one of those things that we see through the series of the civil rights movement and the voting rights movement, she was an integral part of. But again, as a woman, she always was in the backseat. Her best friends were Medgar Evers, John Lewis, Julian Bond, Betty Friedan. I mean, you know, when the list goes on and all of those Martin Luther King, these were all people that she stood with. But even when they told her she needed to be quiet, like at the uh, 64 convention in Atlantic City, that's when she became the most famous in her life because she was going to give that speech about what it was to be suppressed because they were going to seat an all white delegation in Mississippi. And her thing was, how you gonna see the all white delegation when it's 70% black folks in Mississippi? You ain't, and they're gonna give, and they told her they would give her and one other person a seat on the delegation. She said, oh no, we didn't come all the way. We bought two busloads of black folks that came all the way from Mississippi on a bus to Atlanta City. And you tell me you're gonna make a deal. And these were people that were in her party. They were going to make a deal and told her, just be quiet. And she wouldn't. She wouldn't. So when she marched up to speak at the National Convention, the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, which became the most historic moment in her life, that is when the White House found out Johnson was now president. Kennedy had just been assassinated. And in the middle of the beginning of the speech, they cut her off and went straight to the news. And Johnson made an announcement. And it's you, you, you can find it. it. It plays on YouTube all the time. He made an announcement because that was the only way they could stop her. And he said, um, on this day, nine months ago, Kennedy was assassinated. But it was long enough with the reporters coming in and the president's not an announcement that he's going to announce his running mate. They're going to do that. And everybody was so concerned about that right at the pivotal moment of her speech because they did not want America to hear what she was saying, what was real in our country. And she's, it was a 13 minute testimony. And you can still find it on YouTube if you pull it up. 
And that testimony, she told the true stories of how she was beaten. This is a woman that by the time she was 50, she had uh, permanent kidney damage from being beat so bad. Um, she had a blood clot in the artery of her left eye, and she really couldn't see in that left eye anymore. They had beat her so bad that she could barely walk at times. You know, her leg was almost numb. She had no feeling in her left leg. So this is a woman that was beaten literally into, you know, and within an inch of her life, and she was sexually assaulted. She never spoke about that. But you can imagine at the time that she was beaten in Winona, Mississippi, which probably was her most traumatic time, she was beaten um, by five men in a cell. And two of them were Negro prisoners and three of them were guards. And she couldn't even walk. I mean, literally they had to, the other members of the Freedom Democratic Party had to carry her to her trial. So, I mean, this, and she couldn't, she didn't go home for a week because she didn't want her children and her husband to see her in that way. That's how swollen and beaten she was. So she stayed with friends. Um, and on that very day that they released her from the jail in Winona, Mississippi is when they shot Medgar Evers. So not only was she beaten from that and trying to heal, but then the first thing that I think it was Andrew Young, uh, Reverend Andrew Young, um, it was Andrew Young, uh, James Bevel, who was also a part of, and Dorothy Cotton, they came to bail them out of jail. And the first thing they had to tell her, because she lived down, you know, they lived close to each other, was that Medgar was just shot in front of the house. So this was a woman that never gave up. And she was never sad. And she was always encouraging people to continue the fight, continue the fight. Um, and it's amazing because in this show, which is a chronicle of her life, um, that's all she, these are actual speeches, a lot of them that have been lifted and put into this piece. And it's so, it's, it's so shocking that we're, she's talking about the same thing we're going through right now as a nation. There are interesting parallels between her and you finding out unexpectedly what your path is, being open in a remarkable way to, to recognize when your path is in front of you, even if yeah. it's so antithetical to what you might have thought. And then once you've discovered it, the possibility of giving up. Yes. And going for it, never mind that it's not easy. Never, you're like a reincarnation in a way uh, of, of all the things that, that made her so special and so, so yeah. you know. So yeah, I think about that often because the author, Cheryl West, brilliant woman who always writes such heroic pieces about women. When she did this, um, she had me in mind and she said to me, I got something for you. And I kept saying, what is she said, I got something for you, but I'm working on it. You just keep holding. And literally about two years ago, she sent it to me in uh, the spring of 19. And she said to me, she said, read it. Call me. Let me know what you think. And I called. Her, I said, when do you want to hear it? Because Cheryl is a person that has to hear stuff. I said, when do you want to hear it? I want to talk. And she's like, OK, we're going to get it. OK. Wow. And we did. And we started in the spring of 19. And we were scheduled. We did a workshop of it at the Goodman. We were scheduled to do it in production and do it in association with all of the theaters, Seattle Rep and uh, Arena Stage and the Goodman and now Oslo. And and then the pandemic hit. 
We were like, oh God, well, that's not going to happen. But our director, Henry Godinez says, nope, 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 nope. We're going to have to, this is too much. She's speaking to the very moments we're in right now. We can't do that. And I, and I kept saying, no, I just feel like she wants us to do this. This is a call to arms. And so um, uh, Henry came up with a brilliant idea that like Luis Valdez did, let's take it to the people. Uh, Luis Valdez, you know, back in the 60s, he would uh, take, uh, he was fighting for the immigrants and so that the farmers could know what they were going through. He would take the trucks out into the field against the owners and speak to them and tell them all of these things that they needed and the rights they had and everything. And as they came down, they jumped back on the truck and they'd leave. So Henry says, let's get a trailer. Let's do it outside. That's the only way we can perform now. People need theater. And we started doing it in the parks in Chicago this past summer at nine parks in conjunction with the Chicago Park District, followed all CDC code guidelines, did COVID tests. And then Michael Edwards called me. He says, what are you doing? And I told him about it. He says, oh my God, send him the script. He was like, oh, we have to do this. So it's been one of those labor of love that we truly are doing this in honor of Fanny, truly, and doing it like she would have done it. Nothing ever stopped her. And trust, trust me, I did it also in D.C. on the wharf. Two weeks before the election. <laughs> Two weeks before the presidential election. And um, I tell this story real quick. You probably won't get in here, but I tell this story real quick. that Two days before the election was probably the last time that our former president had a rally. And I was standing there doing this Fannie Lou speak <laughs> on it. On the war, and you know, if you know anything about DC, when the president moves, these three helicopters move along with him. So I'm on the wharf, and I'm out there, and I'm doing Fanny, and the helicopter comes and it stops, and it's above my head, and the whole audience kind of looks up and looks back at me. And of course, that was a night that the reviewer from the Washington Post was there. <laughs> And I don't know, something happened and somehow Fanny soared over every helicopter that was flying over my head. Um, and I said that again, that was Fanny. That wasn't me. That was Fanny Lou Hamer. I could have never spoken over all of that. But she lifted me up and she took me. And she's been doing that ever since I started. And that will never change. You should say when and where and how before before we close so uh when is it on when when is when is we begin the 22nd of february uh -huh. and we run six shows a week until the first weekend in march it is at, at the oslo terrace theater so it's outdoors is safely spaced cdc codes are being followed you're only set in two chairs a piece. It's a 250 seats, so get your tickets because <laughs> they're going quick. You know, they're selling, and it is an American story. Let me say that to people who feel like, I don't know. It is an American story. One thing I have to say is one thing that Fannie Lou believed in and loved more than anything was her country. She's an American patriot. She, she, she did everything she could to ensure that democracy was at the forefront of everything she did. It didn't matter your color, your religion, your sex. She was on your side to ensure that you had equal footing in this country. 
she She could hardly have had a better advocate than you. This is a wonderful place to to stop the interview. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn.